And as you're turning there, just a brief introduction to help orient us as we consider this psalm and what God has to teach us this morning. Uh, This psalm is in a section of the Psalter of 15 psalms that all have the same title, Song of Ascent. These are psalms that the Israelites would sing as they were traveling to the holy city for times of festival and sacrifice. Uh, We might think of them even as their playlist. This is what they were listening to. This is what they were singing together as they traveled on the road to the city. And these psalms have a particular theme. They're a reminder, an an exercise even in remembering that the Lord is the one who cares for his people. Consider this. They're leaving their homes behind and their businesses for a time, probably worried about those kinds of things and whether it would be the same when they got home. And as they sang these psalms, they were reminded that everything that they have comes from God, that he gives them and that he protects those things and that he cares for his people. And this psalm in particular reminds them that the Lord is the one who restores the fortunes of his people. And you might be asking yourself, if these were psalms that the Israelites sang on the way to Jerusalem, in what sense are they relevant to us today? Just consider this. These aren't just psalms for Israel. These are psalms for the church. They're psalms for us. And they're psalms for you. In these psalms, the Lord speaks to us. And the Lord speaks for us. And he carries us along as we continue in our spiritual pilgrimage to the holy city where God will eventually welcome us into his presence forever. So this is a psalm of encouragement to you as you continue in your pilgrimage toward heaven. So let's hear these words. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful that you speak to us in your word and that we know these to be your word to us so that we can receive it with great confidence. When you give us promises, we can believe them because we know you always keep your promises. And when you give us commandments, you give us the strength to keep them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in us this morning in and through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to make us ready and able to believe your promises and to keep your commandments. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Everybody loves a comeback story. That moment when someone or a collection of someone seems as if their cause is completely ruined. They're absolutely defeated. And yet suddenly, victory is grabbed from the jaws of defeat. We love those stories. We have them in history. Someone like Winston Churchill, who was called to lead a nation at a time of great instability and won a great victory. And then that victory was forgotten. He was removed from office. But when they needed his leadership again, they brought him back. We have it in our own history, the the story of President Harry Truman, who thought he'd lost his re-election campaign. He went to bed thinking his cause was lost, and he woke up in the morning and found out that he'd won. We have that picture of him with a cheesy grin on his face, holding up the Chicago Tribune with a title that says, Dewey Defeats Truman. We have them in sports as well, something like the 2016 NBA Finals, the Cleveland Cavs are down 3-1 to to the Golden State Warriors. Nobody's ever come back from such a deficit in that kind of situation, and yet they won the last three games. A great victory. For baseball fans, 2004 American League Championship Series, the Boston Red Sox thought they would finally beat the Yankees, and they're down three games to zero. It seems as if their cause is lost, and they win four straight games and win the series. We love those stories. Whether you're the fan that's rejoicing in the victory or not, you can imagine what's going through the heads of those who've won the victory. Can this be real? Did this really happen? Or is it just a dream? That's what we see in Psalm 126. A victory, a restoration, a turnaround, a reversal of fortune so great and so wonderful that those who receive its benefit ask that question, is it just a dream? Can this really be true? This psalm looks back to a time in the history of Israel when God proved himself in such glorious ways. He poured out his restoring grace in such marvelous quantities. The reversal of fortune for the people of God is so great that their only response can be fits of laughter and shouts of joy. Even asking the question, is it really true that God loved us in this way? And that memory gives the basis for reflecting on certain biblical truths. In particular, reflecting on the fact that Lord, the Lord is the one who has restored the fortunes of his people. He's the one who continues to restore the fortunes of his people. And he's the one who will provide a final and full restoration for the people of God. And knowing those things to be true calls for a response. We'll see Psalm 126 calls us to respond to God's grace in at least three ways. First of all, to praise the Lord for past restoration. Secondly, to pray to the Lord for ongoing restoration. And then third, to rest in the Lord's promise, his guarantee of future full and final restoration. So first of all, this psalm calls us to praise to praise the Lord for past restoration. Look again at verse 1. When the Lord brought back the, the captive ones of Zion, 
we were like those who dream. The focus of the psalm, of course, is on restoration and the exuberant joy that belongs to those who receive this restoration. But it's important for us to notice as well that whenever there's a restoration, it points us, first of all, to a time of loss. This psalm remembers a time in the history of Israel that was characterized by great suffering. In fact, the whole psalm reminds us of the tension of the Christian life. That the Christian life is not simply victory upon victory, but that the Christian life is filled with tears and with toil. And that's true not just in our past. It's true in our present, and it will be true as long as we walk this earth. The Christian life is filled with suffering. Even the laughter that we see in verse 2 suggests a harder time. A time when it seemed as if we might never laugh again. We might never smile again. A time when it seemed as if all was lost. Maybe you remember such a time in your life. Maybe some of you are in the midst of such a time of suffering and loss. And understand then the significance of this psalm. That it doesn't ignore suffering. That this psalm acknowledges the suffering that the people of God face. That's significant for us. It's it's good news for us. That our God doesn't ignore suffering. He cares for those who are suffering. He mourns with those who mourn. He promises deliverance for the weak and the poor and the oppressed. He promises to comfort those who are suffering. He's a God who honors, who, who hears who inclines his ear to the lament of his people. This memory in verse 1 is rooted in great tragedy. In fact, John Calvin believed that the tragedy was so great that it could only describe exile in the Babylonian captivity. He was convinced of it. I'm not so convinced. But, but the point is, is that the suffering that's, that's anticipated and that's remembered in Psalm 126 is deep and difficult. And what's beautiful about the Psalms is it actually doesn't matter necessarily the context in which it was written. The point is that God is the one who brings freedom to the captive. That God is the one who, in Christ, brings freedom to those who were once enslaved to sin. That brings uh, freedom and victory over death to those who were under the power of death. And he brings that freedom in a crucified and risen Savior. And so we can rejoice with confidence because God is the one who restores the captive. Charles Spurgeon wrote a brief poem in response to the beginning of this psalm. And it goes like this. When God revealed his gracious name and changed our mournful state, our rapture seemed a pleasing dream. The grace appeared so great. This psalm reminds us that God loved his people. That God gave his son to die for his people. That God saved, delivered, and forgave his people. And therefore calls us to give praise to him. To rejoice and give thanks. Because God's grace is that great. In fact, his grace is so great that sometimes we wonder, can it really be true that God loved me in that way? And if we know his grace to be that great... It calls for a response. 
That's what we see in verse 2. We see, first of all, a response from those who've received the restoration of God. Verse 2, it says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Exuberant joy, a, a celebration of praise to God. Think about the reversal that happens in verse 2. Before, I wasn't sure if I would ever smile or laugh again, but now I'm overcome with laughter. I almost can't stop laughing. And with songs of joy, in fact, with shouts of joy. Sounds a little bit like the hymn that we started with. If, if I only had a thousand voices, I'd raise all of them in praise to my God. The only response that makes sense is loud and boisterous praise to God. Martin Luther once described the gospel in this way. The gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. Sounds like Luther, maybe overstatement, but there's something to it. Laughter and joy and praise is tied up in the promises of the gospel. Listen to how John Calvin responded to to verse 2. He said, The psalm describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth into extravagance of gesture and of voice. Sounds like Calvin's telling us to maybe raise our hands in praise to God. We have reason for laughter. We have reason for joy if we know the grace of God in Christ. I remember a time, our family talks about this fairly often, uh, in the middle of a worship service and in the sermon, there was a particular sentence that grabbed my attention and I said pretty loudly, amen. And one of my teenage children elbowed me and said, stop it, you're embarrassing us. (laughs) But sometimes you just have to respond in praise. Because God's mercy is that great. So it calls for a response from those who have been restored. But notice as well, there's a response from the nations. It says in verse 2, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. calls for a response from the whole earth, from the world. This This verse is talking about the Gentiles, the the unbelievers, who even they take notice of God's kindness to his people. There are times in the history of Israel when the nations simply have to say it. The Lord has done great things for them. We see here even the power of the witness of the people of God. The Lord has done great things and the people of God respond and praise in such a way that the nations take notice and say the Lord's done great things for them. And then the people of God respond in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And of course, on, on this side of the cross, when God has revealed his salvation in the death and resurrection of his son, who's now risen and ascended at the right hand of God, the Gentile nations no longer have to simply say the Lord has done great things for them, but they can join with the people of God and say the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. We probably need to stop and ask a question before we move on. It's simply this, has God 
has Christ done that good work in you? Do you say with the Gentile nations in Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for them? Or do you say with the people of God, the Lord has done great things for us? Friends, don't wait. Trust in Jesus and know with the people of God that the Lord has done great things for you. So it's a call to praise. But secondly, this psalm calls us to pray. (laughs) To pray to the Lord for present restoration. Verse 4 is almost an echo of verse 1. It says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, in verse 1, remembering, but now there's a prayer in verse 4, restore our captivity. Notice, by the way, it doesn't mean send us back into captivity. It's saying restore those who are captive and bring them back to us. Restore us from captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. You see, the memory and the praise becomes a prayer. This psalm isn't simply resting in the past. It's not looking back to, with nostalgia to the good old days. But that response of praise then is a springboard to call us to continue crying out to the unchanging God. You have restored us. Lord, continue to restore us again and again. Because we're in need of perpetual spiritual restoration. We need the power of God at work in our lives each and every day. And the Lord promises to do that. This is a God who said, I've begun a good work in you, and I will continue it until the day of my return. The pattern in Psalm 126 is striking to remember and to praise God for what he has done, but then to pray for him to continue to be at work in our lives. And then he gives us two illustrations. They're visceral because they're images that are familiar and powerful, but they're also complementary images. They tell us of two different ways that God works his restoring power in our lives even today. The first image is that of a desert. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, which is for the people of Israel, a desert land. The image is of a desert in the middle of a summer drought. There are channels where water used to run, but now they're dry and hard and cracked ground. And have you seen what happens in a desert when long-awaited rains come? It's as if almost overnight there's new grass and flowers and color and vibrancy and life. The desert becomes a garden. The image there in verse 4 is of the delightful suddenness of God's refreshing grace. He's giving us words for those times of spiritual thirst. When we feel as if we're wandering in a spiritual desert. When it seems as if God has gone silent. And the power of God's grace is no longer at work in my life. Or at least that's what I think. Color and life and vibrancy is gone. I'm thirsty and everywhere I turn, it looks like there's water, but it turns out to be a mirage. We've all been there. Some of us are there today. And this psalm promises us that if we cry out to God for his cooling and refreshing streams, that that's a prayer that he loves to answer. It's a prayer that he regularly answers for his people. 
Maybe you've experienced some of those answers in your own life. A sermon where just like one sentence awakens you to the mercy of God. A song that you sing or another one sings and just one phrase reminds you anew of the mercies of God. A steadfast friend that the Lord sends to you at exactly the right time who speaks a word of gospel promise and awakens your soul to the Lord's kindness. A sunrise, a sunset that reminds you of God's saving power. The Lord loves to answer this prayer for his people. But he also answers it in worship. Think about the context of this psalm where we find this promise. They're traveling together to worship the Lord together. And it's particularly there where they sing this psalm and the Lord answers this prayer for his people. We've all felt this, right? Where you wake up on a Sunday morning and you think, the Lord's been silent, should I even go? And the answer is always yes. You should go. Because it's particularly in worship with the people of God that the Lord speaks his promises to you. And he puts a new song in your heart. Puts new words on your lips. And he strengthens you by his grace and his mercy. So we see, first of all, that the Lord sometimes restores with this delightful, sudden outpouring of grace. But notice the second image in verse 5. It's the image of a farmer. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Farming is a slow, steady, deliberate discipline. Arduous labor. Joys that are hard won and long awaited. An exercise of faith. The farmer prepares the ground, plants the seed, and then he waits. He works, but he waits. And he prays. And waits on the Lord to bring the increase. That's often what the Christian life is like. Sowing in tears. A hard battle against sin. With painful labor and frustration. Step forward, two steps back. But always waiting on the Lord to bring the increase. The Christian life is paved with hard realism and often with tears. And yet the Lord promises through those tears and through that labor that there will be a time of joyful shouting as he pours out his mercy on his people. It's a faithful expectation of harvest. A harvest that the Lord's promised. A harvest that the Lord's won. A harvest that the Lord gives. And so even the hard labor comes with a promise of great rejoicing. This is the pattern of the spiritual harvest in our own souls. As we struggle against sin and cry out to God for his grace and mercy. But it's also the pattern of the spiritual harvest in the souls of others as we take the gospel to the nations. And this harvest pattern reminds us, first of all, of who we are. Weak, lost, and fallen 
creatures in need of God's grace and mercy. It reminds us as well of the world in which we live that's weak and lost and fallen as well. But it reminds us also of the God that we serve. Who is a powerful, saving, restoring, harvesting God. And for those reasons, it's a call to pray. And to pray, and to pray in faith for his restoring power today and every day. So the psalm calls us to praise the Lord for his restoring grace. It calls us to pray to the Lord for his ongoing restoration. But finally, it's a call to rest. To rest in the Lord's promise of future, full, and final restoration. It's probably good for us to acknowledge that sowing in tears is not a great marketing message to the world. You don't get a lot of people signing up for sowing in tears. But with those tears comes the promise of joyful reaping. Notice how it's promised to us in verse 6. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. When we embrace the restorative pattern of the harvest that's, that's shown to us in Psalm 126, we embrace as well the certainty of the promise. And that certainty is made clear to us at least in two ways. Notice, first of all, the language of verse 6. He who goes forth weeping shall indeed come again with a shout of joy. Every promise from God is a guarantee. Every promise he makes, he always keeps. This isn't a possibility, what's described for us in verse 6. It's a promise and a guarantee. It says something like this, if we did it kind of in a wooden way, it would say, he who surely goes out weeping shall surely come home with shouts of joy. In other words, the Lord has restored in verse 1. The Lord continues to restore in verse 4. And the Lord once and finally restores in verse 6. And because God says it, you can believe it. You know it's true. So the language tells us, first of all, that this is a promise. But there's something else, seemingly small, but very significant, that's happening in verse 6. Maybe you noticed it when we read it. Verses 1 through 5, all the pronouns are plural. We, are, them, us, those. What happens in verse 6? He who goes out shall indeed come home with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why the change? Some believe that the change there is just to remind us that the promise is personal. It's to all of us, but it's also to you. But I think there's something more significant happening here. The psalm has a particular he in mind. A greater and a better harvester. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's reminding us that the pattern of the spiritual harvest in Psalm 126 finds its mold in our harvesting Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how Jesus describes himself in John chapter 12. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And then as he goes on in that chapter, he talks about the hour of his glorification when he's lifted up on the cross. And he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He's the seed that was buried in the ground that produces much fruit and carries forth a glorious harvest. Jesus willingly and forcibly embraced the harvest pattern that we find in Psalm 126. And he did it because it's his pattern and it's his way. Jesus sowed in tears in his humiliation. He was born in human flesh. He was made under the law. He endured the miseries and humiliations of this life. He bore the wrath of God that was due our sins and the cursed death of the cross. He was buried and rested in the grave for three days, continuing under the power of death for a time. But he also reaped with shouts of joy in his exaltation, raised on the third day, ascending into heaven, taking his seat at the right hand of God and coming again to judge the world at the last day. And he did this for the glory of God and for the good of his people. He did this for you if you're trusting and resting in him. So that when he comes home, He comes with shouts of joy, with the hosts of heaven, bringing his sheaves, his fruitful harvest, his people with him. Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus? Then this promise and this guarantee is for you. This he has surely done. This he will surely do. He's done it for all those who trust in him. The pattern of the harvest is the pattern of the cross. It's the pattern of our Savior, and by faith in him, he invites you to join in that pattern. And with that in mind, just two points of application as we close. First of all, friends, you can know, you can know by being joined to Christ that the certainty of the promise in Psalm 126 is yours. There's no doubt that if you are in Christ, he will bring you home with him. William Barclay wrote a poem in response to this psalm, and it goes like this. It says, So came Messiah, friend of men, a man of sorrows he, to fight with grief and tears and pain that we might conquerors be. Behold, he comes the second time to wipe away our tears and takes us up along with him for everlasting years. As you travel the trail of tears that is life in a broken and fallen world, friends, you can know with confidence that if you're trusting in Jesus, he will bring you home with him. You can bank on it. But secondly, this pattern of the harvest in Psalm 126 is the pattern that he gives to his church. He tells us that the fields are white for harvest. And he sends us into those fields with great promises that as we sow in tears, we will reap with Jesus with shouts of joy as he brings his sheaves with him. Charles Spurgeon once said that when a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, he is elect to usefulness. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls. Let's pray, friends, that God in Christ will so work in our hearts and minds that we will will weep over those who are lost and that we will go with confidence knowing that the Lord will gather his people even through the witness of his church. Praise be to his name. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for these great promises. We come to you as needy, needy souls, turning to Jesus in faith, asking that you would strengthen us to to follow the pattern of our Savior in our lives and in our witness, sowing in tears and reaping in joy with confidence because we know our Savior is living and powerful to save. We pray this in his name. Amen.